Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and we have a great episode for you this week. I'm super excited. I had the opportunity to chat with one of the most thoughtful Christ followers I know, Oz Guinness. Oz has written or edited more than 30 books, including his latest, Impossible People. And we touch a little bit in the podcast um, on his childhood. Oz was actually born in China during World War II because his parents were there serving as medical missionaries. And so Oz had the opportunity to witness the climax of the Chinese Revolution, and his family, along with most other foreigners, uh, were expelled from China in 1951. Uh, They returned to Europe. Oz completed his undergraduate studies at the University of London, and then he went on to earn his doctorate in the social sciences from Oriel College, Oxford. In 1984, Oz moved to the U.S., and aside from uh, his many books, many of you probably know Oz because he speaks widely across the world on a variety of issues, including religious freedom and contemporary culture. He is currently a senior fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics in Oxford, uh, but he and his wife, Jenny, still live in the Washington, D.C. area. Now, on this week's episode, Oz speaks very candidly about the major issues that the Western Church is facing and really about the need for Christian courage in the face of contemporary culture. Oz provides some encouraging advice to pastors. I know you'll enjoy that. He also points us all to boldly embracing the steadfast hope of Jesus. I believe you will be both challenged and inspired by what Oz shares today. So I just invite you to sit back and enjoy my conversation with Oz Guinness. I just want to welcome you, Oz, to the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Well, it's my privilege. Thanks for having me, Jason. Excellent. Now, before we jump right in, I want to personally thank you for a book that you wrote nearly 20 years ago entitled The Call. Now, I I get to read a lot of books, but I've got to say, Oz, that is one of the books that's had the most profound impact on my journey with God. And and The Call is one of those books that I've not only cherished, but I've given away so many different copies. And seriously, I encourage all of our listeners, if you've not read The Call yet, you need to get it and you need to read it. So just on a personal note, thank you for for that book, Oz. Well, thank you for saying so. That's incredibly encouraging. That's by far and away my bestseller because it is so personal and many people have spoken of it the way you did. So thank you. I appreciate that deeply. Excellent. Now, I really would like to touch on some of the topics in your most recent book entitled Impossible People. I've got to say the subtitle of the book is very intriguing, Christian Courage and the Struggle for the Soul of Civilization. And as I'm reading through the book, it seems to primarily be addressing Christ followers in the Western world. And and in it, you say that now is not the time for cowards or for fence sitters. Can you help frame our discussion today by explaining to us what what really is unfolding in our world? What is this struggle for the soul of civilization? Well, can anyone doubt that we're living in the most extraordinary time? So you take the fact that America is going through its gravest crisis since the Civil War, that Western civilization as a whole is in decline, that the world has incredible challenges on its plate, globally speaking, 
And as we look to the future with things like superintelligence and transhumanism and so on, there are unprecedented challenges for humanity. And the challenge of the American church is very simple. I would call it the scandal of the American church. In most of the countries in the West, including Europe and countries like Canada and Australia, the church is a minority, except maybe, say, in Poland. But here in America, the Christian faith is a huge majority of Americans, and yet when you compare it to tiny communities like, say, the Jewish community, whom we appreciate, or the gays and lesbians, whom we don't appreciate so much, you can see that they are less than 2% of America, whereas Christians are a huge majority, and yet these tiny groups have far more cultural influence than we do. In other words, the salt has lost its saltiness, and the light isn't as light-bearing as it should be. So we're at a moment of extraordinary crisis and transition. So why do you think the church has lost its influence on culture, while some of these kind of smaller groups have increased their influence? Well, if you put it one simple way, it would be that the American church is weak because it's worldly. It's more shaped by American culture than it is by the gospel in many instances. Now, many people, when they look at the challenge of today, they, they look at ideas, you know, the alternative religions or relativism or postmodernism, and those are all sets of ideas, and they're very important, and we need to understand them. But I would argue that at the same time, many American Christians don't recognize how we've been shaped by American culture, and that's at a different level. And so my book has a chapter on the way we've been shaped unawares very often by our culture and not by ideas. Ah, so we are uh, really kind of letting culture shape the church more than the church is shaping our culture. And and that seems to relate to what you write about regarding the growing cynicism to the authority of Jesus and Scripture. As you, you share that the authority of Jesus and Scripture has really been called into question within the church almost as much as it has been from outside the church. So I'm curious, what do you see as the root of the cynicism? And then how do we as church leaders best address this issue? Three examples of the way we've been shaped by modernity, often unawares. And the first one is the way that modernity shifts us from a stance under authority to a stance of preference. Uh So you can see the Christians should be under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus is Lord, but equally under the authority of the Scriptures, because Jesus put his stamp on his word through the Scriptures. But you can see in the last generation, Americans have shifted from a stance under authority to a stance of preference. And the main reason is consumerism. You take the way we have a hundred cereals to choose from in the supermarkets and hundreds of everything to choose from, playing up to relationships and, of course, to religions themselves. And so you see, at the end of the day, everything's pick and choose. Everything's a matter of preference. And while it's not like liberal theology, say, which is through higher criticism undermined the scriptures over the last 200 years, it's just as deadly and many Christians now have a pick-and-choose attitude to Scripture. Oh, well, Paul, he was the child of his generation. 
you know, I don't like what it says in the Leviticus about this, that, and the other, and so I just uh, cut it out. Mm. And you can see that many, many evangelicals no longer are really under the authority of Scripture in any strong way. So this attitude of pick and choose and consumerism that has crept into the church, it, it seems like you're saying we're on a slippery slope here. So what can pastors and ministry leaders do to help overcome this slide? Well, we've got to build in to preaching an awareness of the challenge of the world. And when I was at Oxford, I, saw a, I read a fascinating seminar or, or a sociological essay on preaching that changes community. And I wish I'd kept it. I lost it. But I, I do remember the basic outline because they were alliterative. The man argued it wasn't correct doctrine by itself. Of course, you had to have the scriptures preached well. It wasn't charismatic delivery, his second CT. You hopefully had preachers with a certain amount of eloquence. But what really changed community was the third CT, which was cultural diagnosis. In the sense, he argued, that you've got to preach the word, three quarters of the sermon should be an exposition of what the word says, but the last quarter should be application, including how the world says something very different. So, for example, I remember coming over to Washington, I was living in Oxford then, and I heard a series on the Beatitudes. At first, I thought, this is very impressive, the Greek and the Hebrew background and all that sort of stuff. But then it became incredibly unsatisfying to say, our Lord says, blessed are the poor in spirit, but America says, blessed are the winners, the Hall of Famers, the MVPs, the celebrities. In other words, the world says exactly the opposite of the word. And good preaching should raise the challenge of what the world is saying and what we've got to take on. Now, someone who does that instinctively and extremely well is, say, someone like Tim Keller. You're not diluting the word to suit the world. No, you're actually raising the tension. So the word says this, and the world says that, and Christians are going to go out of the church and take it on. And we need that in all sorts of preaching, much greater realism. Otherwise, preaching just floats away the sort of spiritual truths that fade in the air. Oz, that's so good. And I, I love what you said there about three quarters of the sermon digging into and exegeting scripture. And then that final quarter focusing on application. But I hear you defining that application in a very important way, right? It's not what we sometimes hear that the application is making scripture somehow fit into our world. But really, the application is holding God's word up and against what we see in the world around us, right? And and calling people to understand this countercultural reality of God's kingdom and what that means for our lives today. You know, I, I'm thinking some pastors seem to think application is making the gospel fit into life comfortably, but really, you were saying the application piece is about calling people to the challenge of the countercultural reality of God's kingdom. Jason, you mentioned my book 20 years ago. Next year is the 20th anniversary, and the publishers are talking about a new and enlarged edition. And one of the things I would put in would be the call of Abraham. Because you can see in Genesis 12, the Lord called him 
from his land, from his birthplace, and from his father's family, right at the heart of the earliest call, is a radical break. And you can see that the Jewish way, and then the way of Jesus later, was you know decisively different in the Old Testament from Egypt, of course, but also from Babylon. And we need that sense of a decisive break today, where we're radically different, we're countercultural to the world as America's going now, so we have to have convictions and courage, but a very clear understanding of the differences. So as, as pastors are seeking to reach into their community, right, they're, they're seeking to share the, the hope of Christ, and I think that we've seen somewhat historically in the American church, at least, that there's almost this idea that we need to um, almost lower the bar in a little bit in order to to get into that that opportunity for conversation, spiritual conversation. But it seems that in your book that you're kind of arguing the opposite, that we need to really um, emphasize what makes the church different from the world in order to really help reach people with the truth of the gospel. Absolutely. If you're taking communication seriously, you know, our model, of course, is the incarnation. Or Paul's wonderful descriptions in 1 Corinthians 9, where he says he becomes, you know, all things to all people, a Jew to the Jews, Gentile to Gentiles, in order to win them to Christ. In other words, there's no question that the first stage of any good mission is identification. You can call it contextualization, indigenization, all sorts of fancy words. But you've got to become one with the people you're talking to. Now, the trouble is the seeker-sensitive movement, the audience-driven movement, did that. It came one close to people and then joined them. And that's the tragedy of Protestant liberalism. And it reached the cultured despisers of the gospel and then joined them. Whereas Paul says he became a Jew, became a Gentile, all things to all people, in order to win them to Christ. And so certainly we've got to be on people's wavelength. But at the end of the day, to bring them back to our Lord and the way of Jesus is drastically different from the way of the world. So the seeker-sensitive movement is a half-truth. If you make it a whole truth, it needs to compromise. Oh, no, that's that, that's good. So uh, really being missional and in, in the idea of, of building those bridges, you're saying is obviously important. I mean, you, your, your parents were medical missionaries in, in China, so you firsthand knew, have that knowledge mm-hmm. of what it means to enter into the, the culture around you and to build those bridges, but then those bridges are being built um, not just so that um, you begin to all look like each other, but those bridges are built so that you can call them to something greater, and that is the truth of Christ. Exactly. Excellent, excellent. Now, one of the things that I note throughout um, the book, Impossible People, is this a prophetic encouragement, I, w- I would call it from you, for Christ followers, especially in the Western Church, to um, be courageous. And I found it interesting. I loved the the uh, quote that you had from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He said, when it was hard to be a Jew, people stayed Jewish. When it was easy to be a Jew, people stopped being Jewish. And in many ways, is that what we're seeing among our Christian brothers and sisters today in the Western Church? Exactly, exactly. In other words, the early Church was born in a very pluralistic climate, but it retained its exclusiveness to the Lordship of Jesus and counted the cost. And of course, our Lord 
told them persecution was coming, and he called them to count the cost and pick up their crosses, and they did. Our trouble is that we got used to, we grew complacent through being the Christian consensus, say as late as the late 1950s. And then in the 60s, the consensus collapsed, and we've seen an explosion of pluralization across the world. And so now a lot of Christians are confused and demoralized, and they're not as courageous as the early church. The pluralism shouldn't surprise us, and it certainly shouldn't shake our confidence. Uh, and now, of course, with, say, the sexual revolution, we're described as bigots and retards and Neanderthals and all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And it's time simply to pick up our crosses, count the cost, and follow our Lord. Yes, and, and you just mentioned that we're not as courageous as the early church, but it seems to be even even maybe more than that. Like here in the Western church, many are not, it seems, living as courageously as our brothers and sisters as we look around today in different parts of the world, especially those who are really facing true persecution. Uh, you know, it's we, we look at them, we admire their courage, but then we seem to be living very comfortably. Can you share with us how we can move from simply being inspired by the courage of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world to, you know, really embracing that courageous living ourselves here in the Western Church? Well, you know, when our Lord called us to take up our crosses and follow him, he's surely saying that everything that contradicts his lordship, we've got to put on the line and be prepared to give up. And in different generations and in different cultures, that will mean different things. So, say, for a theological student or someone in a philosophy department of an elite university, they might be surviving the scorn of an intellectual assault. So someone who's in an area where the sexual revolution is demanding that he gives up, uh, you know, Christian convictions, it, it, it might be very different. No, whatever the thing is, we've got to count that cost and be aware of it. Now, my overall arc, I was born in China, as you said a few minutes ago, and I often say that the Chinese church that my parents had so much work among, they survived the most brutal systematic persecution, maybe in all Christian history. They survived it magnificently. And yet, in some ways, I don't want to minimize their courage in persecution, it is harder to negotiate the big city life like Shanghai, Beijing, and so on, than it was to survive persecution. And many Christians are falling away. Now, in other words, modernity causes more damage, although it's subtle. No one's beheading us like our brothers and sisters that at least. But modernity has done more damage to the church than all the persecutors in history put together. So our challenges in the West are more subtle, but they're equally damaging, and we've got to be aware of them. And if you don't recognize them, this is my argument, if you don't recognize them, you can't resist them. And many Christians don't simply understand modernity. They understand ideas, as I said, but modernism, ISM, relativism, postmodernism, they're all sets of ideas. And if someone believes a set of ideas, you could persuade them out of it five minutes, and ten minutes later, they're a different person. 
you can't escape modernity like that. It's the whole spirit system and structures of our modern world. And I mentioned consumerism earlier. That's just one whole number of examples you could give. On that note, um, you said it's important that we recognize um, modernity. And uh, you said consumerism. What are what are some other other bits of modernity that we might you know that the church might not be recognizing that that you think we should um, be aware of? Well, I put two others in that same chapter. One of them is the way that modernity shifts us from integrated faith to a fragmented faith, just by the scale of our modern living. And I take the example of Los Angeles. Where my beloved wife comes from. We were working with a church out there for a while, and I just got them to think, how far did they drive to church? Well, many of them in this particular church in L.A. drove 75 miles to church, 100 miles to work, 50 to the beach, go to a film or whatever. In other words, their lives were strung out, as L.A. is, you know, linked loosely by freeways and cars. Now, the trouble is faith flourishes in some of the worlds that people are in, hopefully in their home and certainly in their church, but they go to a corporation or somewhere else, and it's a different world with different ways of doing things. And it was in Southern California that Theodore Rajak made the famous comment in the 60s that the Christian faith has become privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. In other words, it flourished in a fragmented way not everywhere, but if Jesus is Lord, we've got to take his lordship into every single area of our lives, including our work, including the public sphere. And many Christians, without realizing it, simply don't. So that's the second example I give in the chapter. And the third one is, uh, take longer to get at that one, the shift from a supernatural worldview, which we have in the scriptures, to a basically secular worldview where we live, as Peter Berger puts it, in a world without windows. You know, it's the world that's the real world, business, science, and so on. It's the world you can touch, taste, calculate, weigh, measure. But that's not the real world, biblically speaking. The unseen world is not unreal in the biblical understanding. Yet for many Western Christians, they're actually operationally atheists. Wow. So when we think about the the idea of um, the supernatural, or even that idea of not compartmentalizing our faith, but having our faith um, be evident in all aspects, the totality of our lives. How do we, how do we live that out? How do we express that both within the church and then in you know individual lives without tipping over into what you refer to as the weird, the wild, and the the wonderful? Um, how do we keep that kind of you know, so well, it connects with people. What I say there is when the mainstream church is actually more secular than the scriptures and the Lord, and then squelches any expressions of the Holy Spirit, the weird, the wild, and the wonderful will flourish at the margins. Mm. And if only there was a biblically based fullness of the supernatural understanding right throughout the mainstream church, you wouldn't have the weirdness of the extremes. That's the problem. Uh-huh. Now, we got to, this is a much greater problem than just our modern world. It goes even back beyond the Enlightenment. You can see way back to the 5th century. I would argue, as I do, following people like Francis McDonald, you can see that our Lord, you know, he discerns in the power of the Spirit, heals in the power of the Spirit, 
preaches in the power of the Spirit, delivers in the power of the Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit he gives to the Twelve, the Seventy, the whole Church from the day of Pentecost, and you can see it thriving right down to the fifth century. And there's absolutely no notion of cessation. That's rubbish, theologically. St. Augustine, for instance, is a little dubious when he comes to faith. And then he's introduced to healing, saying he himself records 70 miracles in Hippo alone. But then the trouble starts, and it becomes associated with special people, the saints of the capital S, and then special places like Lourdes in France or Dock in Ireland. And then, of course, when it's specialized that, it's surrounded with corruption, with money-making, with superstition. And the Reformation threw out, sadly, not only the bathwater, all the corruption, it threw out some of the baby, too. Mm. John Calvin was the theologian of the Holy Spirit, but many of his followers are the frozen chosen. <laughs> and then, of course, came the Enlightenment, and now modernity, where you have no need of these things, we can do it all ourselves. Thank you. So many Western Christians are actually operationally atheists. But if you go to, I was in Uganda in October, and I go to Asia every year. Many of the Asian, the African church, they they operate day to day in the power of the Holy Spirit, and so should we, just as the church did in the Book of Acts. Right. That that's that's powerful, and so. What? Um, how, how do we better operate in the power of the Holy Spirit? I mean, we're kind of, uh, in a way, it seems that uh, there are some churches, I think, that, that do this very well in, in the Western world, um, and others that kind of seem locked in, I guess, to, you know, not not wanting to get too far out there, in, in a sense, right? Yeah. Uh, no, Jason, let's be clear. It's got to be biblically based and biblically balanced, and there's a whole lot of Scripture including Corinthians, so how it's biblically balanced, for example, speaking in tongues in public worship. But I would just say for all of us, we have to read the Scriptures and ask if our reality is the full reality that Jesus and the whole of the Bible has. You think of, say, Elisha and his servants, and his servants panicking, and Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes, and then he sees the horses and chariots of fire around him. So you take something like Paul's teaching on supernatural warfare, or you take something about Daniel, and there's no one more realistic than Daniel, virtually the prime minister of one of the greatest empires of his day, and yet he's aware of the angel prince of Persia and the angel prince of Greece. In other words, even politics is not just purely secular. And we've got to have people engage it at the secular level. It's very important. But also churches and individuals who wage supernatural warfare when we're dealing with political things, like we're dealing today. There's, there's a demonic element. There's a madness element. And we need God's restraining hand in order to deal with some of these forces which are way beyond the purely human. Oz, that is well said, and and something that I I believe we all need to keep in mind, especially because the modern culture in which we live seems to encourage us to really dismiss those spiritual elements. Now, you've said that the greatest danger in the generations ahead is not really going to come from the fringes or the extremes, but rather from what you call the soft center of the almost anything goes evangelicalism. 
you say the church is fast becoming the breeding ground for uh, the undecided, for the fence sitters. Now, Oz, if you were sitting down over a cup of tea with a regular pastor from a typical church here in North America, what encouragement would you share with them about addressing this uncommitted soft center in their local churches? Well, in a way, we're very close to the time of Elijah. And Elijah, who is the Lord's man, was against Ahab, a king, and Jezebel, a queen, and then the 850 false prophets. But the majority of the people, as you said, were sitting on the fence. And you can see today in America, you've got some strong extremes, and then a whole number of people just sitting on the fence to see which way the wind's going to blow or which way the battle's decided or whatever. But this is a time when all of us who love Christ need to be faithful and stand up be counted. And I would argue that pastors of all the callings we have today are the key for the very obvious and simple reason that Sunday by Sunday they have the privilege and the incredible responsibility of standing between the Lord and the people of the Lord. So they bring the word of the Lord from the Lord to the people. So pastors, in many ways, that calling is not any higher than the rest of us. I'm not a pastor, but it is today an extraordinarily important one. And we need pastors with a real sense of passionate confidence in the word and the courage to preach it unashamed. It won't be popular. It may be politically incorrect. It may even soon be illegal. And just as the poor Swedish Pentecostal pastor, you know, got jailed for his sermons on, on the gay issue, for example, that may happen in more places. But we need pastors of tremendous courage. I've actually called for the fact that, you know, one way to resist it, people get picked off one by one, a florist here, a cake maker there or whatever. I almost suggest someone could do it. You need someone with a statue of Billy Graham to call for it. On a certain day in the year, all evangelical pastors together should preach whatever they feel like from the Word, whatever they're led to preach, whatever passage, you know, on the biblical view of, say, the gay issue. And then, you know, who could challenge that? Who's done right across the country together? And I'm reminded of the time, you know, when the, when the Germans invaded Denmark and they called and said, all the Jews step forward. And the Danes, with tremendous courage, all the Danes stepped forward together. And the Nazis were absolutely flawed. They couldn't arrest all the Danes. <laughs> and in a way, we've left certain courageous people to be picked off one by one. Whereas we've all got to speak out. I don't mean rudely or, you know, angrily, but I mean humbly, but absolutely confidently and bravely speaking out on the Word of God in undiluted ways. Speaking out courageously, yet also humbly. I love that, Oz. Thank you. Now, as we come to a close today, are there any additional words of encouragement, perhaps something we haven't touched upon yet, that you'd like to leave with our audience? Well, last summer, at the end of our course in Oxford, where I was teaching, there was a Nigerian brother who was interviewed in our church in Oxford, about his time in England, and at the end they said, anything you'd like to say to the congregation? And he said very quietly, we in Nigeria are dying for the faith. Think of Boko Haram. 
please, you in the West, don't continue compromising. And he said it was such a simple profundity, they abandoned the rest of the service and just prayed before the Lord. And that's the sort of situation I think we're in today. Now, when Impossible People came out, Rick Warren very kindly gave me an endorsement, and he said, I'd love to do it because I meet so many Christians who are demoralized today, confused. And I think I just end with this. As Christians, we should always be realistic, but with hope. We look the facts in the white of the eye, but because of the sovereignty of God and the power of the gospel and the fact that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, we always end with hope. And I hope your pastor's like that. We've got too many people today fearful. Fear is the dominant emotion right across the global world. Of course, the scriptures say from beginning to end, have no fear. Have faith in God, have no fear. And that, that's what I'd urge all the pastors to show in everything they do. I love that. I love I love the idea that, because sometimes we can almost uh, get overshadowed by, by what's going on in the world around us. But the truth is that um, we have the hope of Christ, and um, and we we don't need to be in fear. We just need to seek God and, and cling to Him and, and speak courageously. Um, Absolutely. That's beautiful. Well, brother, I, I again, I just thank you for taking the time to, to be with us and for the words of wisdom and encouragement that you've shared with our audience. I know that they— um, that they'll have something to learn and uh, be inspired from our conversation. So I just want to thank you again, Oz, for being with us. Well, my privilege. God bless you all and all your listeners. Thank you, and God bless you, brother. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on today's episode. We certainly hope you enjoyed the podcast. And if you are indeed finding value from the Church Leaders podcast, we'd appreciate you taking just a few moments to jump over onto iTunes and to leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders find our podcast so they can benefit as well. We thank you so much in advance. And until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.